Hi, I'm Sukrat Singh from Zik Archive and welcome to the 27th episode of our podcast series of conversations with historians, authors, academics, researchers and activists on topics related to their areas of expertise on Sikh or Punjabi history. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Divya Sharma, who is a lecturer in sustainable development and the co-director of the Sustainable Development Master's course at the University of Sussex. We discussed the Green Revolution as a regime that swept the global south, its particular manifestation in Punjab, not just as a whole, but also in the local regions. And towards the end, we talk about a comparative analysis that can be made between Punjab and Tamil Nadu. But before we start, a quick message about our sponsor of this episode from Six Student Learning, which is an educational resource that is developing a comprehensive Six Studies modular program for sick children aged between 4 to 16 years with the option to take exams for modules and obtain certificates of achievement. And right now they've published a new series of Gurmukhi learning workbooks for those looking to learn how to read and write Punjabi. They are an excellent resource for new parents wanting to teach their children the culturally rich mother tongue that is Punjabi. You can find them at www.sixstudentlearning.co.uk But now back to the podcast to learn more about the Green Revolution with Dr. Divya Sharma. Who is Divya Sharma? I'm a lecturer in sustainable development at the Science Policy Research Unit at the University of Sussex for the past um, two years. And uh, most of my research and teaching focuses on um, the politics of um, uh, sustainability, particularly thinking about the political ecology of food systems and agriculture. I also look at the sociology of labor and work particularly gender relations, and also uh, the intersection of environmental and labor social movements and how they are shaping uh, the agendas of sustainability. Um, I started thinking about uh, many of these issues um, quite early on when I was doing my um, undergrad as well as postgraduate uh, degrees um, at the University of Delhi, um, particularly during my years at the Delhi School of Economics, where I did a master's in sociology, um, I started thinking a little bit more seriously about agrarian political economy as well as agrarian history and, uh, you know, how that's kind of deeply tied to the project of nation state building in India in the post-colonial period. And also how um, the interventions of the colonial state as well as the resistance movements in the early 20th century kind of shaped some of the processes of uh, rural development in the contemporary world. And then um, I went on to work uh, with the Institute of Social Studies Trust, where I had the opportunity of kind of working with uh, smaller uh, NGOs and um, grassroots groups trying to document uh, the work that they do. Uh, And more specifically, I think the experiences of working uh, with the Uttarakhand Environmental Education Center was uh, really insightful in sort of trying to understand how uh, women, smallholder women farmers in hill villages 
kind of manage their lands and their forests. Um, and in particular, I was sort of documenting the experiences of this um, very interesting and vibrant women's movement in Uttarakhand around forest management, uh, which, th- but they also connected, uh, you know, their work on the land and in the forest with uh, issues such as childcare or dealing with um, alcohol abuse within their households and villages. And then I went on to uh, pursue a PhD at Cornell. And in a way, my decision to kind of think about the Green Revolution in Punjab was driven by my experiences in Uttarakhand, where, you know, farming looks very, very different. And I was interested to kind of think about what the future of farming looks like uh, within a space that has been known to be kind of developed and um, the site of uh, modernized agriculture in post-colonial India. So that's uh, kind of what led me to my PhD project. Um, And since then, I've also um, looked at the politics of the Green Revolution, uh, particularly its uh, consequences in terms of reshaping social as well as ecological uh, realities of uh, smallholding farmers um, in Tamil Nadu, in northern Tamil Nadu, as part of my postdoctoral work. And what is the Green Revolution? The Green Revolution is kind of now, you know, a many-headed hydra uh, in the sense that it it has uh, generated uh, volumes of literature um, and there are um, there is scholarship that celebrates it as a success story and uh, many, many critical accounts, uh, not just... Um, more recently, when its effects have become much more um, visible and documented, but right from the beginning in the uh, 60s, in India in particular, where people were already talking about its adverse effects, particularly for uh, small farmers and for um, landless workers. Uh, But in terms of um, the simplest kind of narrative of the Green Revolution is that it was a package of um, high-yielding varieties of uh, seeds, wheat and rice in particular, that that were developed by um, uh, plant breeders to alleviate hunger um, in the global south. And, you know, these this package was kind of uh, beginning with Mexico, was then diffused into India, uh, Philippines, Tunisia, many other countries in the global south. So that's kind of the classic diffusion story, which has uh, its heroes uh, um, as, are, you know, the experts and the plant breeders, particularly people like Norman Burlog, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in India, M.S. Swaminathan. And in the kind of more success story version of this narrative, um, the Green Revolution is said to have increased um, aggregate food production um, in order to kind of meet the goals of uh, food self-sufficiency in India. That narrative has, um, like I said, subsequently been challenged. Um, Many would argue that it was, uh, you know, whatever uh, yield production, increases in yield productivity that we saw were primarily confined to wheat. And it, um, in a way, it led to 
a less diversified diet because uh, by focusing on wheat and rice, um, other kinds of crops that were a part of people's um, uh, diets were particularly what are um, uh, millets with you know that were called sort of coarse grains. Um, lentils etc uh, were uh, neglected and marginalized uh, also more recently um, someone like Kapil Subramaniam in his dissertation has for example argued that the increase in yield productivity was primarily due to expansion of irrigation um, and tube wells uh, and you know pumping out of groundwater and not necessarily because of uh, these so-called miracle seed varieties, which would not be um, as productive without a heavy dose of uh, fertilizer, agrochemicals, pesticides, as well as um, water. Uh, so in a way, the Green Revolution was kind of very input intensive as well as energy in intensive, uh, which is now... Uh, quite problematic if you look at it from the lens of sustainability. Uh, the other part of the story, of course, was the kind of broader politics of uh, post-colonial development uh, in, this, in the period um, of you know, the 1940s, 50s, and the 60s, where a green revolution was sort of an instrument or a strategy which was a part of the broader geopolitics of the Cold War. So American intervention through, you know, USAID and Rockefeller Foundation, et cetera, influenced this kind of program of agrarian modernization that was energy intensive and agrochemical intensive. But the, but the kind of rationale uh, was that by increasing yields, um, the so-called communist red revolution would be averted in these newly independent countries uh, and they could be prevented from drifting to the Soviet bloc uh, or the communist bloc. Uh, and so the term green revolution was actually coined by William God, who was uh, in, in 1968, I think, um, who was a USAID um, um, administrator. Uh, and so the the reference to the green is, uh, you know, a way of saying um, this is a different kind of revolution to the Red Revolution. Uh, so those are some of the kind of narratives around the Green Revolution, which complicate the story and decenter this idea that it was, um, you know, simply a kind of technological package um, that led to um, the alleviation of hunger in the post-colonial world. My next question is, who were supposedly the beneficiaries of this revolution? Uh, so one of the key claims at the time was, of course, that uh, the Green Revolution would generate um, enough food uh, or aggregate, particularly cereal production, not, you know, it wasn't a very kind of diversified package in terms of the kinds of food products, but essentially, like I said, wheat, rice, and maize, and it would produce enough food to meet the needs of the population um, in population in countries like India, particularly, as well as uh, it was claimed that it would benefit small farmers because these technologies of hybrid seeds were, uh, in a way, scale neutral 
And there was quite a lot of debate amongst economists and agronomists at that time. However, it wasn't recognized that being scale neutral, which is this idea that these seeds could be grown by small farmers, large farmers. So in a sense, the technology itself was, uh, uh, you know, not uh, was aimed at benefiting small farmers. But of course, it wasn't uh, resource neutral, which essentially means that uh, it wasn't just about the seeds. It was a it was a capital intensive technology. It required investment in irrigation in fertilizer and agrochemicals and if you look at all of those kinds of dimensions then it wasn't it came with a lot of costs which meant that only a certain category of farmers were able to at least initially adopt it even though subsequently it was diffused more widely uh, but uh, but like I was saying, subsidies had a big role in enabling that diffusion. The Green Revolution swept the global south. But what did it look like in Punjab? How did it manifest and evolve in Punjab? Um, so I think it's interesting to think about why certain regions became the kind of epicenters of um the implementation of the Green Revolution project. Uh, one of the key um, uh, kind of claims made by people studying it at the time was that not only did it uh, promote class inequalities amongst different categories of farmers, but also regional inequalities in the country uh, because, the, uh, because the Green Revolution package was um, essentially concentrated uh, in the first instance in Punjab, uh, Haryana, and also uh, Western UP, uh, and then also in states like Tamil Nadu with rice uh, a bit later on. The reasons for that is in, are interesting to think about. It partly had to do uh, with these areas already having a certain amount of irrigation infrastructure that was laid down uh, during the colonial period. It also had to do with, um, you know, relatively larger operational land size holdings that made these technologies sort of more um, easily diffusible in regions like in regions like Punjab. And of course, Punjab became known as the breadbasket of the nation, um, which is which is, you know, kind of narrative that continues to hold sway to some extent, uh, because it then started contributing uh, wheat and rice and uh, fairly large quantities to the national buffer stock. And at, at that particular time, of course, um, this the food grain was also being procured by the federal government. So the procurement side of the story is quite important as well. Uh, and, you know, the current kind of agitations that are going on by farmers in India around minimum support prices in a way is... Uh, quite linked to the Green Revolution story because this, the whole infrastructure around procurement and minimum support prices is uh, part of the Green Revolution uh, package. Uh, so Punjab does become a very, very key sort of site where, you know, the story kind of unfolds in its most uh, sort of starkest form, if you will. Are there any regional differences in Punjab regarding the impact of the Green Revolution? 
So this is a very interesting question. And I think uh, one that has been relatively um, underexplored in the literature on the Green Revolution, you know, which always kind of talks about Punjab as a a homogenous state and region. But my own work was sort of focused in a few villages in the southwest uh, or the Malwa region, um, which gave me quite interesting insights on, you know, how people themselves, farmers um, and workers, differentiate that region from uh, Maja and Duaba, the other two kind of um, sub-regional uh, ecologies in the state. In the southwest, which is the largest region in terms of area as well as farm households, interestingly also has the lowest levels of education in Punjab. And it's kind of a semi-arid region with a mix of um, sandy uh, desert-like soils, which a lot of older people recall, you know, uh, that in in their um, childhood, that region used to be sort of closer to the way People think about Rajasthan, for example, as a sort of desert-like landscape. It was quite interesting to me that a lot of people referred to their own region as kind of being somehow a bit more backward compared to uh, Doab and Marja, uh, or the other regions in Punjab. And frequently when I kind of asked them why, um, the answer was that uh, because uh, most people rely on agricultural incomes. And that's partly interesting because actually the region has a larger average operational landholding size, but in a way that probably also reflects the lack of occupational diversification among rural households, which relatively speaking, compared to the other regions, which people often sort of reference. The other thing they talked about was always also that emigration to other countries has been significantly more common from the other regions, partly because of the way broader politics operated both during the colonial and the post-colonial period. And the remittances coming from uh, those who migrated abroad kind of changed the makeup of villages in those other regions more dramatically. In the Southwest Malwa region, though, you know, the agrarian crisis, I think, is felt or is being experienced in its most acute form, partly because of the severe sort of health crisis, which is attributed to agrochemical contamination of soils and groundwater, largely because this is also the cotton belt. And so, you know, there have been studies, for example, that have shown that there are high levels of uranium concentration in drinking water samples in the Southwest uh, districts. Uh, What's interesting about Cotton is that um, unlike the other two regions, which primarily grow wheat and rice um, through the Green Revolution, a lot of farmers continue to grow wheat and cotton as their two main crops in the southwest, partly because of the uh, semi-arid ecology. And while the cotton crop was sort of more labor intensive and in a way better suited to the regional ecosystem, it became more and more agrochemical intensive um, and people were using a lot more of the most toxic pesticides and insecticides on the cotton crop. And since the early 2000s, then you had, uh, you know, genetically modified cotton that began to be cultivated in this region. 
So there is the kind of health dimension, which is linked to excessive uh, use of agrochemicals because of the kind of persistent pest attacks on cotton, uh, on the hybrid varieties. But the second element is, of course, the fact that uh, wheat and paddy or wheat and rice are, uh, you know, procured by the state, um, whereas cotton is largely not. And so farmers do get a more sort of stable income if they are growing wheat and rice, whereas with cotton, uh, there is more price volatility. It's dependent on the price of cotton in the global market. So they may get a huge profit one year. And then, you know, if the prices drop, then they lose out. And on the other hand, there is volatility because of the persistent kind of pest attacks. Uh, so in a way, the cotton crop is characterized by a lot of uh, much more risk and volatility than uh, both wheat and rice. And that has uh, implications for both the kind of uh, social and political and ecological landscape of this region. Uh, what has happened in the last decade uh, is also that a lot of, because of all this volatility, many farmers in this region are shifting from cotton to rice or paddy as their second main crop if they can afford uh, to invest in additional motors for pumping out groundwater. Uh, and they often take loans to make this, make that shift primarily so that they can get an assured state-supported minimum price uh, for both their crops in a year. Of course, ecologically and from a sustainability point of view, that's not the best option because water, uh, you know, mo much more water-intensive, but on the other hand, uh, Cotton has been forcing farmers to buy a lot more and spend a lot more on agrochemicals. So it's a basically um, no-win situation uh, in some ways. But the other big implication of this kind of shift from cotton to paddy has also been um, the loss of work for landless workers, particularly uh, women who were employed at least in the cotton picking season. And the story of sort of cotton picking is quite tied to women's experiences of farming. Even uh, older women in landowning households recall, you know, the time when they did go to the fields uh, to pick cotton or at least supervise uh, the landless workers uh, who were picking cotton. Whereas with rice, um, you know, there is just no role for um, women in particular on the farms. So the specific kind of materiality of cotton cultivation has generated specific uh, sense of crises within the, within the Southwest belt. And um, just one last point, which is, it's interesting to note that even Malcolm Darling, the British administrator, as early as the 1920s, when he was writing about uh, what he thought were the developmental successes of the British rule in Punjab uh, kind of cites the Southwest as an exception and says, you know, the peasants in Punjab are doing much better than they were 70 years ago, except in the Southwest where great poverty still prevails. So it's interesting how that kind of legacy and this notion of uh, backwardness has persisted. And I think we need to think about these regional differences uh, within states, partly because they draw attention to 
ecological specificities of regions as opposed to just thinking about regions in terms of political boundaries. Your PhD focused on two broad themes, namely the change of labour practices, but also the resistance to the Green Revolution, such as the social movements, political organising and so on. Could you please um, elaborate more on that? So uh, when I started doing my PhD research, that was around um, 2011-12. And, you know, Green Revolution is one of those moments in particularly in India that is extensively studied. So there is, uh, you know, volumes of literature uh, on the Green Revolution since the 1960s, um, particularly kind of looking at its impact um, on um, class, caste, uh, to lesser extent on gender. But but a lot of that literature, interestingly, that focuses on impact gives us very little sense of how farmers and farm workers uh, who were kind of at the receiving end of these technologies, um, what were what were their lived experiences of these processes and, you know, uh, their kind of subjective accounts and narratives. Um, And so from my reading of that literature, uh, those stories and narratives were missing. So that was partly the kind of driving imperative for my research, which uh, uses oral histories. um, And I spoke largely with older farmers who were 60 years and above. Uh, to kind of get a sense of how they experienced those changes in technologies and what were its kind of impacts on on labor practices in particular uh, and how everyday labor practices transformed with the the coming of these technologies and villages, uh, as well as how those labor changes in those labor practices were then linked to uh, the way agrarian struggles and their forms and modes have changed. Uh, But the second more specific question that I was kind of looking at uh, was how ecology or something called the environment becomes a part of agrarian struggles in Punjab, particularly from the 1990s onwards, uh, which is kind of a different form of resistance or mobilization than, you know, the uh, the farmers' unions and the farmers' movements that were quite active in the 70s, 80s, um, and now are, res- are resurgent again, as we are seeing uh, with the ongoing protests. The difference being that those earlier farmers' movements were focused on uh, issues of incomes and subsidies, And so ecology was not really on their agenda, which is a really interesting thing to think about. That when I started talking to older farmers, you know, they they had a lot of stories about uh, when fertilizers and pesticides came to their villages in the 60s and the 70s and how people were actually um, scared of them and, uh, you know, thought of them as alien substances. And just over a few decades, they are... Uh, you know, kind of an intrinsic part of those ecologies, those villages and those households. Uh, So you would see pesticide containers lying in every household and people, you know, empty containers in which people fill water and use them for all kinds of other things. 
So how do you go from that position of where entire communities are kind of skeptical, uh, perhaps even think of these substances as something toxic to them becoming normalized and a kind of intrinsic part of uh, their everyday practices. And then again, to the point in the 1990s when their impact starts becoming visible. Uh, so that, you know, uh, degradation of soils and water, contamination, issues around health and diseases start kind of surfacing in the public discourse, as well as some uh, organization around and pushback around thinking about the relationship between uh, ecology and the Green Revolution. Uh, so my second specific question uh, was to think about when and how ecology becomes a part of agrarian resistance and struggles, um, even though arguably in the broader scheme of things, it's still a marginal concern, I would say. When we discuss the forms of resistance, did you take a look at the political climate? So, for example, maybe some of the campaigning that was happening for political parties or the change in legislation reforms needed or campaigns that took place on the ground or even the, uh, actually the Khalistan movement uh, with its focus on the Green Revolution, which in particular can be found in the Anantapur Sahib resolution. So I wasn't uh, looking at the period of militancy directly in my research and it surprises me, but, you know, in the oral history interviews that did, that often did not come up uh, as much as I would have expected it to. And of course, there's lots of other scholars who've looked at that and, you know, uh, also made all, some connections between the Green Revolution, particularly, and the period of uh, resistance in the 1980s. But the kind of resistance that I was looking at, uh, particularly working, you know, with the uh, organization called uh, Kethi Virasat Mission, was trying to kind of mobilize farmers uh, and farm workers and also change, in a way, the notion of resistance, uh, which was not necessarily targeted at the state or making claims and demands on the state uh, in the same ways that we are used to thinking about movements, uh, but was mobilizing essentially to get people uh, to change their own everyday practices. Uh, so in my, uh, in my work, I call that, you know, a prefigurative form of mobilization, which is a form of mo mobilization that seeks to, in a way, autonomously change people's practices. And a lot of that kind of discourse was connected to the idea of uh, thinking about the social and the ecological within the same framework. Uh, that you know the kind, and their argument would be that the kinds of demands that larger farmers movements or unions were making around subsidies and um, you know better prices, etc., for uh, wheat and rice would perpetuate the same system that has created the kind of ecological degradation that is in place. Uh, so it wasn't uh, asking for anything that would fundamentally question the assumptions of that form of agricultural intensification. Um, and for them, um, the ecological degradation was uh, in a way 
intrinsically connected with what they called a kind of cultural decline in the fab- fabric of and the social life of communities. So, you know, they would l- link things like indebtedness and um, this idea of uh, consumption being a marker of status or excess consumption being a marker of status uh, or even the issue of uh, drug abuse amongst young people to a kind of degradation of the general ecological environment uh, and often drawing on kind of uh, you know, idioms from Sikhism to kind of make those kinds of connections uh, that if you if you degrade the soil, then it also degrades people's minds and de- degrades people's bodies. So, so in a way, it's a very it's a different form of resistance that uh, that almost says that you know we can't look to the state to change the. Uh, change the problems that we are facing because they are the ones who've created it in the first place. Particularly, you know, talking about the agricultural extension system uh, that promoted agrochemicals and monocultures um, intensively and still does to a large extent. So it's a kind of a resistance that is there to support an alternative means of production, one which can offer more sustainability. And was that coming from a place where these people are uh, witnessing the Green Revolution radically transform their society in a way as to challenge their identity or culture? So the resistance here is acted upon by resurfacing more traditional methods of farming to address sustainability concerns uh, such as the desertification of Punjab. Yeah, I think the issue of traditional methods needs to be unpacked a little bit because um, it's, you know, it's not a kind of simple dichotomy between uh, tradition and the modern green revolution in this particular context, because a lot of those so-called traditional practices, uh, because of the pace and the intensity of the green revolution are, you know, are invisible in, in Punjab, right? Unlike in a lot of other areas where they may have been preserved in some form or another by smaller farmers or some communities. Um, and which is why the role of memory in this resistance becomes quite interesting uh, and powerful. Uh, so the way I'm thinking about memory in my project is also um, a way of recovering what is sort of invisible on the material landscape. Uh, and how those memories are then utilized or employed in political mobilization to regenerate not maybe the tangible practices themselves, but the notions of what agriculture meant and, you know, how it was kind of interwoven into people's lives uh, in a different way, which was non commercial or which went beyond kind of, um, you know, just thinking about it on the economic and the commercial side, but um, how it was sort of culturally uh, a part of those uh, communities. But of course, there is another dimension to this, which is that a lot of the uh, practices that are associated with agroecology or sustainable sustainable agriculture was were also relied on exploitative caste relations, and so it's not necessarily 
a shared regional understanding because there are lots of differences between people's relationship with land. Um, so a lot of Dalit farm workers um, and the younger generations in those families, uh, you know, think about manual labor that is often associated with sustainable agriculture as being stigmatizing. In their memories, that kind of work is associated with um, exploitation and an assault on their dignity, which makes this idea of kind of transitioning to sustainable or agroecological forms of farming uh, not such a, it's not that simple to just kind of invoke tradition because tradition in this context also involves a lot of uh, exploitation. So there are kind of layered narratives here. And also on the question of gender, for example, um, similar sorts of unevenness sort of starts surfacing within these memories and uh, their understanding of what traditional is. One of the things I noticed about Punjab is how uneven it is regarding many things such as the disparities in land ownership, caste dimensions, uh, the allocation of subsidies and, and so on. From my understanding, this creates an atmosphere where the dominant groups are the beneficiaries of such policies like the Green Revolution so my question is, did the state of land ownership in Punjab, um, with regards to, you know, the differences between small and large landholders, did that play a significant role in the resistance to the industrialization of farming? Absolutely. And I think um, there is, you know, there is the question of uh, particularly rising indebtedness among small farmers. Uh, but also, I think what's for me, what was really interesting that came out of my research was also this idea that the somewhat medium farmers, I would say even in some cases, larger farmers, particularly in households which did not have any other form of income, non-agricultural form of income, those farmers who had followed the so-called modernization script of the Green Revolution, right? also were at a point where they could see its adverse consequences. So, so there is no question that the small farmers uh, and farm workers and the landless communities in particular suffered perhaps the most disproportionate impacts of the Green Revolution. And like I said, not only in uh, economic terms, in terms of incomes, but also you know, the impact on their health and, you know, the pollution, they are the ones who were actually suffering those consequences despite not having economically benefited from those processes. But, and then you have, you know, the medium and the large farmers who did benefit economically from uh, the Green Revolution, at least for a certain period of time. But in many of those households also, you, you could see the, the kind of, massive debts that they had incurred uh, from, you know, uh, buying tractors uh, or having, you know, maybe two seasons of crop failures can push households into debt. Um, in other cases, it was a major, you know, uh, cancer or other kinds of illnesses in the household that can push households sort of immediately into, de into debt. 
And so it's, um, I mean, interestingly, Punjab has one of the highest expenditures on uh, private healthcare, uh, which is something worth thinking about. So on the one hand, you, you, you could say you have large investments by the state in subsidies on, uh, you know, fertilizer and irrigation, etc. And on the other hand, you don't have enough infrastructure spending on things like uh, rural schools or uh, rural healthcare which is also a part of, you know, what shapes these experiences of a sort of rural life. So I think we need to think about the Green Revolution also in relation to some of those um, other processes, which often kind of gets papered over when when the emphasis is just on incomes or agricultural incomes or even land ownership. Uh, so one of the interesting ideas is kind of thinking about ecological poverty. And the movement that I was working with kind of talks about this in interesting ways that, um, you know, if your um, environment is degraded and by environment, they also include health uh, as an important part of thinking ecologically. Um yeah, so not just thinking about it in terms of monetary incomes, but also just in terms of uh, often I found while talking to farmers and um, others in in the villages I was working in, even talking in terms of land was not often sufficient to understand uh, a household's uh, position in a broader sense because you could have households that did own land and yet did not have enough disposable income, for example, for that particular season uh, because of crop failure or having to repay uh, the loans that they had taken on. So uh, so I guess what I was trying to say was that, um, you know, thinking about class inequality only in terms of uh, land and incomes can be limiting. Uh, But the other significant point, I think, is that with health becoming a major kind of issue in in this region, and people are now actively, you know, attributing um, higher incidence of cancer, reproductive health issues, etc., to excessive use of pesticides and agrochemicals, that does sort of become a common thread across uh, different classes of households. Uh, And that can often be actually one of the things which creates some kind of common ground for mobilization or a common ground for mobilization for rethinking the green revolution model of farming. Uh, So I did, uh, you know, I would talk to a lot of farmers who were actively involved in rethinking their practices. And these were farmers who had, um, you know, uh, between 10 and 20 acres, uh, older farmers often in their 70s, but had, you know, sort of experienced and had been able to kind of recognize the process of degradation and indebtedness that that uh, trajectory had led them to, uh, while also recognizing that they might have benefited monetarily from it for some, uh, you know, a period of time. So it's a case where they they would recognize that they were themselves implicated in a way in perpetuating that model, uh, but then have also recognized its limitations 
and and you know particularly through the lens of health i think uh, which makes ecology a much more tangible kind of uh, you know the understanding of ecology is much more tangible it's not uh, you know the elitist notion of environmentalism as something that's disconnected from people's lives was punjab impacted by the green revolution regarding migration family structures and and on urbanization because from my understanding it didn't drastically lead men to urban centers for example yeah no it wasn't i think what's interesting in terms of migration is thinking about the role of uh, farm workers who who were coming to punjab from other states um, right uh, from places like bihar uh, because as a epicenter of green revolution it was the region where you know one could see that maybe farm farm incomes even uh, in terms of wage labor were maybe slightly higher um, than some of the other regions although that that um, inflow of migrant labor seems to have declined in the last um decade or so and i think that's partly you know people have attributed that to a lot of different things you know the uh, the kind of rural employment guarantee act for example or a decline of agri- agriculture in punjab itself and cotton actually is i think an interesting crop to look at for uh, for for that particular a reason but also rice uh, so i think with migrant farm workers one of the interesting things that comes up is this idea that rice was always an alien crop to punjab right before the green revolution no one eats rice in punjab even now in their everyday meals even though now they've grown it for like you know 60 70 years and so uh, migrant farm workers particularly from states like bihar were seen as kind of being more adept at uh you know working in rice uh, in flooded fields and growing rice uh which uh you know a lot of people would the farmers would say the local la- labor was not just up to the task of uh growing rice uh so it's it's also inter- interesting to think about the kind of tacit knowledges and the role that tacit knowledge plays in cultivation so it's not you know this idea that uh, hybrid seeds etc and the green revolution was led by the scientific community uh, but how that intersects with um, um the kind of knowledge as people hold and pass down generations within communities as kind of i think some of those kinds of narratives are really interesting to think about in in the context of the green revolution and what knowledge actually means in terms of uh, cultivation practices so yeah sorry and coming back to your question about migrant uh, about migration i think the other interesting thing is that is the dilemmas that are being faced by the younger generations in farming households in punjab right um so i would meet a lot of farmers who said that their kids were just not interested in farming anymore even in the more sort of well off households uh, and that's a that's also a story about aspiration a lot of this sort of younger generation who grew up uh, through the green revolution years and still devalue 
you know, has been led to kind of think of agriculture as a as something that doesn't give them the same kind of status that working in the urban uh, economy would. But they're also not willing to go and work in construction or in some of the manual forms of work that are the only available options. So they're kind of stuck in a nowhere sort of place where on the one hand, even if their families own land, everyone can see that farming is no longer a profitable profession. And on the other hand, you know, the options in the urban economy, at least the kinds of options that they would want uh, are not really available to them, uh, which is this idea of a, you know, salaried, white collar office job. And people in their 80s actually make an interesting comparison because they said that um, 70s and 80s, that when they were uh, younger, people who got public sector jobs, which are now, you know, people would give anything to get a public sector job, whether it's in the, even if it's in the army. Uh, But at that time, they said people from landed families actually thought, looked down on people who had public sector jobs because it was thought of as something, you know, where you had to work for someone else. Whereas if you if you owned your own land, you kind of were in control and had a certain kind of autonomy. So the notions of work and what what is valued and devalued also has kind of transformed. And I think the Green Revolution needs to be thought of much more in terms of those kinds of issues. So through the lens of labor and work to unpack some of its implications. Some of the dire consequences and phenomena we are witnessing from the Green Revolution, other than poverty and inequality and so on, is the violence attached to all of this, in particular farmer suicides. Could you please um, elaborate more on that? Yeah. Uh, So I use... um and this is drawing on the work of a a literary scholar, Rob Nixon, uh, but I think it's a very powerful notion to think about the Green Revolution in Punjab, which is this idea of slow violence. Um, And slow violence is something, you know, that unfolds in in an invisible way, which makes it uh, harder and much more difficult to challenge. Um, And I think for me, the idea of slow violence is the most palpable if we start thinking about the role of things like pesticides, where, you know, not only did it have um, an impact on, you know, the local ecology, plants and, um, you know, animals, uh, but also on people's lives. And uh, so in the earlier years, people's stories often, you know, touched on things like how the earliest generation of pesticides was so strong that people would get dizzy. Um, and, you know, they would often hear of people dying, etc. But as they became uh, kind of less potent, that didn't mean that their harmful if- effects disappeared. It's just that they became more and more invisible. Uh, so, you know, the impact on people's health now is it's harder to kind of make that correlation between the two processes. And that kind of invisibility is a type of slow violence 
that is much harder to resist than than more kind of overt forms of violence, which are more palpable. Uh, I think we can think about debt in the same way. And that is now leading, you know, to uh, farmers, suicides in particular. So that slow form of violence is now kind of turned into a overt form of violence that uh, people are inflicting themselves. But the notion of debt, again, is kind of linked to this technological treadmill where more and more capital intensive inputs were required as there was degradation of soil. So you need more fertilizer, you need uh, more or different types of pesticides, and you become more and more dependent on them as well. And at the same time, you're not getting the same kind of prices uh, for the crops. Plus, there is issues of uh, crop failures. So all of that then adds up to debt, as well as, um, I think, thinking about gendered relations here is quite uh, important as well, because uh, one of the things uh, a lot of the older women also talked about is that with the Green Revolution, you had, you know, many of the uh, landowning families where women did actually go to the fields. Um, even if it was to supervise workers or pick cotton. Uh, but a lot of them were kind of uh, withdrawn from the fields and confined to the house with the Green Revolution because that became a marker of status. But that also meant that um, if there was crop failure or if there were economic sort of issues or issues of indebtedness, that responsibility uh, fell more and more on on the men and you know it wasn't kind of a sh- farming was not a collective endeavor within the household and that has implications for the way indebtedness is then experienced by men as a form of shame of not being able to kind of fulfill their obligations etc so i think it's um the question of violence and you know of course people like vandana shiva have made direct sort of, I've tried to say that the Green Revolution was linked to the kind of violent period in Punjab's history in the 1980s. But I think we also need to think about these sort of more invisible forms of um, slow violence that that have unfolded over the decades. I really agree because, um, of course, these are so sinister that the violent consequences usually surface decades later, which of course have an impact on our behavioral patterns, such as the domestic violence or the ever-increasing concentration of land ownership and the subsequent violence attached to, you know, that found in inheritance or family uh, disputes and so on. Can I ask you now about procurement? Because um, I remember you saying it's quite significant to this whole discussion. Um, So I think one is, you know, the issue that's talked about uh, quite a lot, which is um, monocultures of wheat and rice, right? Um, That there was a much more um, diversified cropping system before uh, the Green Revolution and um, um, which was kind of eliminated in a way in favor of wheat and rice. And the, the, the kind of excessive emphasis on hybrid seeds obscures the fact that it was because the government kind of, you know, used procurement as an incentive 
which is what made a large number of farmers move to wheat and rice, uh, as well as um, in the area in the southwest uh, where I was doing my work, cotton as well. And the comparison between cotton and wheat and rice is interesting because uh, cotton is not, you know, farmers sell cotton in the open market. Uh, so it is not, uh, then it's not being sold through public procurement, which means there's a lot of volatility. You might get a really good price one year and then it drops significantly the next year. So uh, with public procurement of wheat and rice, um, farmers can still expect some form of uh, stability. But on the other hand, because only wheat and rice were being procured by the state for its um, national sort of food uh, buffer stocks, it did lead to monocultural cultivation, which had implication, which had ecological implications. Um, and, you know, it leads to kind of higher incidence of pest attacks. Uh, that means people have to use more and more um, agrochemicals, but it also has implications on people's diets, right? So farming households are not no longer growing things on their own land that would be sufficient for them to have a nutritious, diversified diet. So they have to go out into the market to buy pulses and, you know, some of the other things, vegetables, etc., that could have been uh, grown on their own lands. Uh, so one of the strategies and tactics that the uh, movement that I was working with is employing is trying to get more and more farmers to at least dedicate a part of their land, you know, a small plot to growing things, a more diversified crops, so that they can at least meet their own household consumption needs through that. So I think the, the, the question of procurement is complicated because in a way, the only remaining form of stability in terms of incomes that farmers have in regions like Punjab is because wheat and rice is being procured by the state. But in the overall scheme of things, that's not sufficient to tackle the kind of deeper problems that have been uh, generated by the Green Revolution model. Uh, so one of the things some uh, scholars uh, and activists are arguing for is, of course, that the state should procure, for example, at minimum support prices, a more diversified a portfolio of crops, uh, which would move farmers away from this kind of monocultural cultivation of wheat and rice, uh, which is, of course, not as, you know, is now widely recognized, is not good for the regional ecosystems, uh, as well as um, nutritionally. In your more recent work, as part of your postdoc research, You've also looked to make a comparative analysis on Punjab and Tamil Nadu. Could you please elaborate more on that? So thinking about how the story of the Green Revolution kind of unfolds in Punjab and Tamil Nadu in ways that are similar or different um, is uh, quite interesting because both have been um, considered to be kind of epicenters um, 
in a way since uh, the early years of the green revolution the big difference of course being uh, punjab um, you know the success story revolved around wheat all the punjab was obviously uh, and does continue to grow significant um, quantities of rice uh, whereas in the in the south or in tamil nadu the focus was uh, primarily um, on rice and um, things didn't go quite that smoothly with hybrid varieties of rice in the beginning uh, so the green revolution didn't take root in tamil nadu until a little bit uh, later uh, but in terms of more um, kind of uh, substantive um uh differences i think or uh, themes around which we can look at them comparatively is you know for example the question of irrigation so tube well irrigation um in a way was uh, much more successful um in punjab where um where you know majority of the uh, cultivated land is now uh, using uh groundwater whereas in uh tamil nadu which you know where also there was a kind of substantial expansion of um groundwater irrigation i think the question of water uh, depletion is a much much uh, more stark one now particularly for uh small holders whereas in punjab i think the more everyday concerns of people are also sort of centered on uh, excessive use of um agrochemicals uh, and particularly pesticides which has also led to contamination of soils and water in the region where i was working in which is the southwest uh, where a lot of cotton is grown as well and um you know cotton kind of is notorious for excessive spraying with uh, pesticides um so for me in you know in my work in both these areas i was more interested in understanding uh, the perceptions of farmers uh, and land landless workers themselves and how they kind of looking back on the green revolution story as well as their current circumstances evaluate uh, some of these uh, changes uh, in the landscape as well as their um own quality of life uh and so i like i said for for a majority of the small holders um in uh, northern tamil nadu where i was working their primary concern was around depletion of water to the point that they were finding it difficult to carry on cu- cultivation whereas in um in punjab i think concerns around health debt massive amounts of debt uh, are much more um common in the public uh, discourse uh, debt though i would say is uh, you know a feature of um, uh, both these sides where farmers do feel like they are um, you know not getting enough uh, returns for for their uh, crops um, and of course in punjab there is some sort of security because the food, uh, because the uh, procurement infrastructure the state procurement infrastructure is much stronger whereas um, in tamil nadu most farmers end up selling their produce um uh, privately and don't uh, don't often recover their input costs 
The other kind of big difference is, or differences in dynamics are around gender and caste. Um, so in Punjab, you know, women were kind of withdrawn, uh, particularly in land, land-owning households uh, from uh, cultivation uh, in Jat households, whereas you see women uh, quite active in the fields um, in every part of the kind of uh, agricultural cycle um, uh, in Tamil Nadu, and they seem to have uh, some say in the decision-making around uh, sowing and marketing of crops. Although, uh, you know, several of the uh, oral history interviews that I did with women, even in Tamil Nadu, did talk about their dispossession from land by uh, their family members. The caste dimension, again, is quite interesting, uh, but I would say in Tamil Nadu, you see a much more active uh, Dalit movement, and even in uh, everyday stories that uh, people tell in the village that I was working in, uh, they talk quite a bit about how they contested casteist practices and hierarchies uh, within their own village. And uh, and the village that I was particularly working in, um, most of the Dalit community was um, Christian. And, you know, uh, so they, so they do have a much more kind of active uh, sense of uh, this history of resistance along um, challenging caste hierarchies. And I would say that kind of resistance is a lot more uh, muted in the context of Punjab, where I think the the power hierarchies between the landowning Jats and the landless Dalit workers are much more uh, sharper and pronounced. In terms of resistance, we are also able to witness a lot of the commonalities. The protests, for example, we are seeing now in Punjab. There were also similar protests in Tamil Nadu. So what can we observe from these two movements? Is it a symptom of the Green Revolution? And uh, how can it help us to rethink what the Green Revolution is? So, I mean, I think... Just to begin with, you know, we have to think about the Green Revolution not as something that happened, but as something that's ongoing. And so someone like Raj Patel, you know, has called it the Long Green Revolution, uh, which is an ongoing process that has kind of changed its form since, in a way, roughly, let's say, since the 90s and 80s, because a lot of the subsidies that were used to prop up that system uh, are being gradually uh, withdrawn. Uh, so in a way, farmers are now uh, entrenched in that system or the technological treadmill uh, that was created by that system. Um, and yet at the same time, the kind of support mechanisms that propped it up are being withdrawn. So they're left to kind of bear the consequences of that system on their own, which is uh, which also takes me to this question of, you know, in a way, we are seeing this process of shifting the costs, right? So areas like Punjab that were thought of as the national breadbasket and, uh, you know, at this at the time in the 60s and the 70s, there was a lot of even resentment at the fact that some of these subsidies and the Green Revolution package was uh, being uh, directed towards Punjab at the expense of other regions. And rightly so, I think a lot of 
the farming communities in Punjab feel like they, you know, created and generated all this food product, food for the country at the expense of their own soils and water and health. And now in this moment of crisis, uh, the government in a way is moving away. So, you know, we are seeing um, other states that are becoming prominent in the procurement strategy, Madhya Pradesh, and now the government is talking about the second green revolution in the Northeast that is supposed to be more sustainable and, you know, sort of propping up organic agriculture, etc., in the regions that were left behind by the previous Green Revolution. But in a way, it's it's a way of sort of displacing costs, right, from one, and just kind of moving from one region to another uh, and leaving a kind of, you know, leaving them to deal with the, with the degradation on their own, essentially. And so I think building of alliances, particularly between farmers' movements across regions, becomes quite important uh, in order for this spatial kind of displacement of costs uh, to be challenged, uh, which can't be done only from within one region without drawing these broader kind of alliances. Are there any communities that are scapegoated in all of this as a result of the consequences of the Green Revolution? So in terms of the kind of exclusions, uh, both caste, gendered, and in terms of caste within the Green Revolution, it's quite, you know, as we've sort of talked about before, it's quite well known that the Green Revolution deepened inequalities in both caste and class terms. Um, And so large landowning farmers did benefit more um, and landless workers um, lost out in the long run with, even though there was some increase in uh, wages uh, with mechanization, you know, there was less and less um, work available. Um, But beyond that, um, and this is particularly, you know, true for landless workers in Punjab, who um, have been somewhat sort of visible uh, in articulating their struggles for land periodically. But what I wanted to perhaps maybe talk a little bit about is this very interesting community that um, I came across in the villages in Patinda, where I was working, known as uh, the Borya Sikhs, who are historically a kind of nomadic hunting tribe that was notified by the British state as a criminal tribe. And then subsequently after independence, they were, uh, you know, denotified in, I think, 1952. And they were fairly small in number uh, where I was working and they kind of lived on the periphery of the village. But I think thinking about their position in relation to the Green Revolution and its aftermath is quite interesting in thinking about the exclusions, not just of the Green Revolution, but also of the uh, resistance movements and sustainability politics at the current moment, because the Boreas, in a way, uh, you know, were uh, forced to work in the canal colonies by the colonial state. And that legacy of being kind of branded as criminal tribes has persisted and the social stigma of that has persisted. Uh, So they talk about, you know, uh, discrimination, for example, on the job front, Uh, literacy levels are still quite low. 
the children of these communities. And unlike sort of the landless Dalit communities, they're not integrated within the um, agrarian social structure of the village. And the way I came across them was uh, because now with the shift towards rice cultivation and also increasing kind of economic distress among farmers, quite a lot of farmers are leasing out their land for three months between the two main crops uh, in order to make quick money. And quite a lot of the Borea community households rent this land for three months uh, to grow vegetables. And the reason they do that is because uh, they're able to sort of make a significant amount of money in these three months because uh, they don't hire any labor. They employ their entire family, labors on the land, um, including um, women and children. And then they kind of um, and then they sell uh, directly in the markets in nearby cities. And, you know, many of them up until maybe one or two generations ago were herders who kept goat and sheep for meat and took cattle from other landowning households for grazing. And these practices kind of disappeared with the loss of the common grazing lands, which is again another one of the um, lesser talked about implications or consequences of um, the Green Revolution, but also agricultural intensification that had kind of started even before that. So on the one hand, you have landowning households who are leasing out land to kind of earn a stable cash income. Uh, but in a way, they are passing on the increasing risks and costs of cultivation onto these communities who never actually benefited from the Green Revolution. And also they um, lost out in terms of access to the commons uh, or the common lands and um, also, you know, traditional kind of native trees, which they used for uh, getting uncultivated food crops, etc. And um, what's interesting is that they are now also often blamed by uh, agricultural scientists and extension officers uh, from the state for using excessive chemicals. And they say, oh, you know, they are the culprits because they want to grow as much in those three months. So they tend to use more chemicals than uh, farmers. So in a way, that kind of stigma persists now in a different sense um, without kind of acknowledging that the reason they make a lot of money is because they, um, as I said earlier, you know, use, don't hire labor and they, do, they don't uh, use any machinery. They... Uh, go and sell in the markets directly. Uh, and one last point is also that not only is the kind of state extension system blaming them for, um, you know, in terms of being culprits of using excessive chemicals, which in a way were promoted by the state system to begin with, uh, but also they are quite absent from the movements, whether they're farmers' movements or sustainability movements, um, and nor are they part of the kind of very uh, still, you know, struggling uh, landless Dalit movements. Well, thank you so much, Divya Sharma, for coming on and taking the time to talk about the Green Revolution with particular reference to Punjab, the consequences of those policies, how it unfolded how it impacted the people of Punjab 
And most importantly, going into detail about some of the local regions, how it affects caste groups, what does it mean for women, and, and all of the other social demographics that have suffered. And it was really interesting to see how people of Punjab resisted these policies of the Green Revolution, which is the focus of your work. So it was a pleasure to have you on. And once again, thank you for your time. And I'm really looking forward to the literature you're able to produce in the near future. And also thanks again to our generous patrons that allow me to create these podcasts. So please do let me know which topics you'd like to hear next. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Six Student Learning, and the tens of thousands of followers across our social media channels that continue to motivate us to actively record and share Sikh history. We hope to continue to keep recording more podcasts and make more Sikh history accessible in audio format. So if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please share with others so that we can attract more supporters that in turn help us to generate more episodes. Thank you.